thought maybe we could change gears a little bit and uh, look at an issue that this time of year really <coughs> brings to mind, and that is the question of the, the exile that we, we find ourselves in, and um, what the correct response should be, what we should feel, and perhaps some practical elements that we could take out of it as well. First of all, you know that we are now moving into the beginning of the book of Shmois, right? The second book of the Chumash, which is really the transition from the world of the root, if you like. Sefer Barashis, the book of Genesis, is really the, the area, the field, the world, if you like, of the, the root forces, what the Ramban calls the Avois, the fathers, that dimension. We move into Shmois, which is the, the book of Shmot, is already the book of the children, the sons, right? It begins with the names of the sons of Yaakov. We move now into the, the, the future, you know, the Jewish people, at the level of the playing out through history of the elements that were laid down in the area of roots. In other words, the, the concept I'm referring to is a concept that's called Maase Avosim and Labonim. Right? Maase Avot, that which the fathers do, Siman Labanim, is a sign for what happens to the children. That's an axiom. It comes from a very deep spiritual root that there's always a... The deep spiritual root is that there's always a, a level of energy that is the root of a thing, which is always playing itself out in the, <coughs> the later expression. <coughs> in other words, <coughs> just like the genes, for example, the genes of a child are the root energy which code for all the things that will be in the future. And then you have a stage which comes later where those things are revealed. If the genes are being built, they code <coughs> for blue eyes. Then you'll have a stage later where that is revealed. Similarly, in all processes in human life and in history, there's always a stage in which the root is laid down, and then it is, it is acted out, played out later. In fact, the truth is really that every stage is a root for the next one, and it's a much more complex <coughs> process than this. But that's the concept, that's the, that's the fundamental idea. And in Jewish history, the way we see this manifest is that <coughs> Sefer Bereshis, the book of Genesis, is the book of the root. There you have everything that's happening to the forefathers. Whatever happens to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, by definition happens as a root force. If it happens there, you can expect to see it later, and there's a guarantee that it will come out later in the generations of the children. Nothing happens to the children that did not first happen to the forefathers. And nothing happens to the forefathers that does not manifest itself later in the lives of the children. And it's an axiom that is worked through consistently. Every detail, for, I mean, you can take even a small detail, seemingly small detail. For example, it says that we know that Yaakov, I mean, Jacob, he went back over the river for some small vessels that he left behind. Pachim Ketanim, right? He left, he left when he was, yeah, on that fateful night when he was waiting to meet his brother Esav. So he went back in a very dangerous move to fetch some small vessels that he left behind. Right? Why did he do that? So, yeah, a discussion in the, in the commentaries why exactly he, he, he felt it necessary not to leave even the smallest and almost... Insignificant, most insignificant vessels not to leave them behind. 
But when you look at that from the perspective of Maisi Abbas Simon Labonim, it means that somewhere later in the future there will also be a collecting of small vessels. And the deep commentaries explain that the reason that no Jew will be left behind, that a final redemption, right? no Jew, no matter how distant, no matter how seemingly abandoned or de- detached or, or hopeless, no, no Jewish soul will be left behind, is because many centuries ago, Yaakov Avinu, who was the father of all, yes, of all the Jewish people, was prepared to endanger himself to bring back every speck of his possessions, which are those manifestations of his own life energy, because he brings them back. In the future, there will be no speck, as it were, of the Jewish <coughs> spiritual entity that, that goes to waste. In other words, we're always looking at everything that they did as a sign that presages or predicts, if you like, what will happen to the children. That's the, that's the axiom. Now, with that in mind, we have to look at the end of Yaakov's life. Yaakov Avinu, his son Joseph, Yosef, is in Mitzrayim. Yaakov goes down, he spends 17 years with his son in Egypt before he dies in Egypt. Right? What does that mean? What does it mean for us? Again, again, are, are we together? <coughs> Let's try again. You have the problem of an exile in Egypt, right? Joseph, Yosef has been there, he's prepared the way. And now, what's happening is, the book of Genesis is ending, Rashi's is ending with Yaakov Avinu, Jacob himself going down to be with his son, to be with his sons. He's going to spend 17 years in Egypt, and he's not going to survive that experience. He will <coughs> die in Egypt, and be brought back to be buried in Israel. Right? That's what will happen. What is that, what is that um, a premonition? Of what is that a premonition? What does that speak out in the roots that we will experience in history? Later. Yeah, what is that phase of Yaakov Abinu's life? What does it mean? His battling against Esau means a particular thing. What happens to his daughter Dina is a particular thing. The fact that Joseph is sold and he endures that experience. Each of these means something later in history. What later in history is being coded for by his going down to Egypt, thinking that he's going to spend some time there, temporarily, and then he will come back with his family to Israel, and in fact never makes it. Now he dies and he's brought back, in fact, to Israel, but not alive. Not only as bones. What does that mean for us? So Ramban says like this. I mean, this is very painful stuff, right? It's not going to be... <coughs> it's not material we're going to enjoy, I'm afraid. But, yeah, let's deal with it anyway. It says, The Pashas Vayechi begins with the, with the words that Yaakov Avinu lived in Mitzrayim. And again, the deep commentaries say, of course, it means lived in Mitzrayim. It means he was who he was and he lived there. In a world of contamination, Mitzrayim is called Erva Saaretz, right? Mitzrayim is called the worst place of contamination. That's the skill of a Jew, is to be able to live in a place of contamination, in a place of, of moral, tremendous moral negativity, right? In a, in a real exile. A real exile doesn't just mean you're not geographically located where you should be. It means you're exiled spiritually. You're living in a place that is the opposite spiritually of what you should be, Vayechi, and you can live there. That's what we're being taught here. But listen to how it works. Kfariskarti, I've already mentioned, says the Ramban, Kiredes Yaakov le Mitzrayim, that the going down of Yaakov to Egypt, Shehu Galusenu Hayom, Biyat Achaya Revis Hiromi. This is the premonition, this is the historical forewarning, if you like, or laying down of what will be our exile in the final phase of human history. In other words, you have to listen carefully now. Where we are in history now, what's happening to us, you and me, here, now, at this place, what's happening to us is being described in Sefer Bracious. What we are living through and what we will have to undergo and how we will look and what our experience as Jews will be in this, in this format, in this, yeah, in this phase of the world's history and how we will finally survive this 
Not necessarily you as an individual or me as an individual, but we will survive this. And we'll come back to Eretz Yisrael, right? We'll, 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 we'll regain all of those three elements that we lost, right? The, the Maral says that all exile has three features. Exile, galut, right? Golos means three things. It means that you're no longer in the place where you should be, that you're no longer together, you're dispersed. Not only are you in the wrong place, but you're not even in one place. You're dispersed. And thirdly, you're no longer under your own dominion. You're not independent anymore. Again, the natural state for a nation is to be in the place where it belongs in Israel, in our case, being together in one place, in that place, and being autonomous, right? That we control ourselves. Exile, you lose those three things. Number one, you're in the wrong place. You're no longer where you belong. Two, you're not even in one place. You're dispersed. You're not even one as a nation. And three, you're under the dominion of nations. You don't have your own autonomy, right? When those three things are re are corrected, that all those three things come together, that will be the phase of the, of the redemption. But right now, <coughs> we are in the hands of the fourth animal. Right? The fourth animal that, that uh, Daniel saw in his vision, namely right, the, the so-called Golos Edom, the, the Roman exile, right? the fourth of the exiles. <laughs> Listen carefully what the Raman is doing. He's going to show you that the way the, the, way the children of Yaakov went down to Egypt, and the experience they had there, and the fact that he died there, and the fact that they died there, and the fact that he was only brought back as bones, he's going to show you that all the features of that experience <coughs> are repeated in our exile. Not the Ramban's writing here in the 13th century. And he's telling you, and unfortunately everything that he said there is amplified many times, much, much worse in our generation. But let's see what he says. First of all, you'll see that the exile was, began, was begun by the mistake of Jews. Right? Before you blame non-Jews for having exiled us and yeah, we made the mistake. That's the first thing. Why? Because they sold their brother. The first thing they did was they sold their brother. That began the whole long story. It will ultimately be corrected by an exile. So, number one, Jews were guilty. Right? You look to ourselves first. We are the cause. Secondly, Secondly, he went down there because there was a famine. There was no food. And so he went down there in, in a famine. Thirdly, he thought he would be saved by going down to this non-Jewish place. In Benoi, in his, with his son Joseph, in the house of one who loved him. Because Pharaoh loved jo- Joseph. Because he loved him. He saved his country, right? Joseph saved his country. He knew exactly what would be. He gave him the right political and technical advice. And Joseph rebuilt the country when it would have otherwise been laid waste. Therefore, Pharaoh owed him a great debt, and he loved Joseph. So Yaakov thought, what better place to go than a country where my son has redeemed them and he saved them and therefore they have a great debt of gratitude and therefore we will be honored there we will be protected we'll be saved <coughs> that's what he thought <laughs> then they thought that they would come back from there <laughs> when the famine ended when the land ended when the famine ended in, back in Israel they would come back there like we said like, like it says <laughs> we've come only to sojourn in the land we haven't come to settle <laughs> because there's no, nothing for us to eat back where we come from now listen to what happened. They never got back. The, the Galut became longer and longer. Umeisham eventually died there. And only his bones came back. And the elders of Pharaoh and the whole nation, they, they all accompanied him back and they made a tremendous mourning. There was a tremendous mourning in Egypt when Yaakov, whom they regarded as the source of their blessing, when he finally died and he was gave, given permission to go back to, to be buried back in Israel, they had a tremendous mourning. Now, what does this mean for us? 
so are we in the Roman, in the exile that we inhabit now, the Edom. Achinu heisivoinu biasenu biyodom. Our brothers caused us to end up in this exile. Kikasu brisimarim, because they made, a, they made a deal, a covenant with the Romans. He's going back into the days of Agrippus, when the Jews then appealed to the Romans for help. They were autonomous. And they, with their own political <coughs> insight, they made certain moves that unfortunately ended up as an exile. Agrippus HaMelech HaAchron, Agrippus, the last king, the Baishani of the second temple, Baruch Alem Ezra. he fled to the Romans for help. And they gave plenty of help. They gave a help that, that, that took over the country and landed up as an exile that hasn't ended yet. Firstly, secondly, secondly, Jerusalem was destroyed ultimately because of famine. You remember the story that it was only because they were impregnable in Shalim. It's only because there was a famine that they eventually ran out of food. And even that they only ran out of because the Jews there destroyed the food. Some Jewish extreme militants, right, burned all the food stores. They had food for years. And the, the exile has become extremely long. We don't know when it's going to end. It's like the other exiles. Every other exile had a, a um, prophetic... The first, te- the first exile in Bavl, the Babylonian exile was clearly, prophetically predicted that it would last for 70 years. We knew exactly how long it lasted. That's how it did last. But in this one, we don't know how long it's going to last. We're in exile now. There's no telling when it's going to end. And we are like dead people. Our bones are dried. We have no hope for us. And we will eventually be redeemed from this situation of spiritual death. Eventually, they will have a tremendous mourning, the non-Jewish nations, when they see that we are, that we are redeemed. And the Hashem's vengeance is taken out, and the, the, the books, are, the books are, are, are settled when the accounts are settled. But what the Ramban's telling us is something extremely, I mean, could lead to extreme depression. Very heavy message. And that is that the events that led to Yaakov Avinus going down to Egypt are the same pattern that we experience now. Just like he went down and did not know he intended to come back alive, but in fact came back as dried bones, our exile will be a situation where we will have as much spiritual life left in us as, as a human being who is now dried bones. In other words, the exile will bring us to a situation where when we finally brought back Right? Let's say very clearly, well, I say very clearly, when the exile finally ends and the Jewish people go back to Israel, right? So you and I, we think it's going to be a tremendous rejoicing, it's going to be an unbelievable... Yeah, so the Raman says, you have to know, for all its greatness and glory and rejoicing, you will be as alive at, ta- at that time as dead bones are in a box carried back to be buried in Israel. That, that's what we'll look like. That means our spiritual life, yeah, what we look like as Jews, you have to understand this, what we look like as Jews now in the exile, what we look like spiritually and religiously, our insights, our, our, our spirituality, that, you know, how alive we are in connection with the source. If you want to know how alive we are now, we are as alive as dead bones are compared to somebody who was once alive. Right? That's what it is. And in, in case you think that's, um, that's bad enough, <coughs> the Gorn says even more than that. The Gorn says that the Gorn, in, a, in his commentary to, to one of the ancient Kabbalistic works, which is known as Suffered at Sneerse, the Gorn says that when the Ramban, yeah, basically when the Ramban wrote this in the 13th century, so he was writing about a stage when the Jews at least had bones. At least bones were left. The Gon says that now we don't even have bones left. What he explains is that bones mean, when you talk about a community, you talk about a body. So the body is alive. Then the body dies, but at least there's a body. Then the body withers away and it's eaten by maggots and all there is is the bones. Then eventually the bones <coughs> become dust. So the Gon says... 
basically paraphrasing what he says, this stage that the Ramban's talking about is a body that's not alive anymore. The, the, he talks about it openly, he says that the flesh will be eaten by maggots, which are the nations around us, who eat away at us, and always looking for opportunities to come up with a final solution. But at least there are bones. Who are the bones? The sages and the learned people among the Jewish, among the Jewish people. The sages, right? The Ramban was writing at a time when the Rishonim were alive. He's talking about great rabbinic authorities, great sages, who are at least the skeleton of the Jewish people. Even the flesh is not, not really there. But at least the skeleton is there. Says the Gond of Vilna, by the time we get to the end of the exile, there won't even be bones. It means we don't even have sages, as it were. Of course, in every generation we have people who are knowledgeable and learned, and to us they are greats and great leaders. But relative to what has been in previous ages, when we are no longer like an intact body, and they, the bones, are no longer like bones, that is what it will look like. In fact, it's been, it's been pointed out also that, I mean, it's, it's a very beautiful insight, in proportion to its pain, of course, is that when the novice says, shake yourself off and arise from the dust, yeah, we sing that, we, 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 um, we adapt those words, and we sing them in, 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 in Lechad Odida, we sing the welcoming in the Shabbos, which is really a premonition of the redemption, we sing those words. Hisna'ari me'afar kumi, shake yourself off, lehitna'er, shake yourself off and arise from the dust. So the sources that talk about it say like this, <coughs> make a very bad mistake. You translate those words as shake yourself off from the dust, arise from the dust where you are. The God of Yonah says it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean shake yourself off, arise from the dust where you are. It means arise from the dust that you are. It doesn't mean that you lie in the dust, dusty. Shake yourself off and then you are who you are. It doesn't mean that. It means you are dust now. Yes, there's a much bigger message. The message isn't shake yourself off from the layer of dust and arise. The, layer is you are. the message is you are the layer of dust. What we're talking about here is a resurrection. We're not talking about a shaking off of dust. We're talking about a resurrection from dust. His na'ari afar kumi, shake yourself off, arise from the dust that you have become. That's what it means. So, I know it's a little depressing, but this is where we are, right? You have to understand, this is where we are. This is the time of year when we feel it, of course. When the ideology of, uh, yeah, that's around us is asserting itself, the spiritual <coughs> point of reference that, they, that which they relate to out there, which is nothing other than a, a misunderstanding of what Torah is, this is when we feel it. So let's, let's try to look at this in a little bit more depth and see, see what it means. The first and most important thing, obviously, for us, and I'm sorry if you're not going to enjoy this, but once in a while we have to get serious, I think, and that is that um, the first and most important message, obviously, for us is what, we, what our response is, what, what are we supposed to be doing about this? How do you respond, in fact, when you are nothing more than a pile of dust? Now, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. You don't have weapons at your disposal, right? You don't have a spiritual power that you can cling to, as it were. That, that is what your problem is, that you don't have that. This is the end of what we call Yerida Sadoris, Yerida Tadorot, the going down of the generations until there's, <coughs> until there's almost nothing left. What is the response? What is the response? First of all, first of all, let's just say that there should be at least a glimmer. It means you need to keep alive at least the spark. Right? At least be a spark of hope. A spark of hope that isn't just, isn't just a sort of um, an emotional thing. It has to be a, there has to be a power that the spark represents. Right? Let's try to... I mean, that's all we have, so we have to nurture that very carefully. Let's just try to explain that, first of all. <coughs> the explanation is this, that 
I mean, you may well respond by saying, what hope is there? What hope is there? If you tell us that, low, that we're that low, and that we've nothing left, and we're not even bones, etc., so what hope is there? Let, let's try and translate that into technical terms. For example, take a mitzvah like prayer, tefillah, right? Tefillah, prayer. Take that for example. The power of tefillah, who I am, my ability to speak to him, and to bring down a new reality, right, is so limited that it's almost laughable. I mean, again, when you go down in proportion and you reach the end of generations, you're talking about, again, we, we are like dust compared to what was once a living being. So how much power do we have left? If we have so little power, you may feel hopeless. You may say, yeah, take a mitzvah like tefillah. How am I going to ask him? I'm going to ask Hashem for the redemption. You know that half of Shimon Esra, more or less, more or less half of our tefillah relates to the redemption, Yerushalayim, the Mashiach, etc. How can I generate any enthusiasm for asking for those things when I know that it's almost hopeless? How can I do that? It's a challenge. Here I am, I'm going to ask Hashem now that He should send the redemption. There were people before me of infinitely greater power who asked and failed. Rabbi Akiva, right, when he asked, he had such power, the Gemara says that when there was no rain and they needed to daven for rain, Rabbi Akiva used to take off his shoes. You know, they used to daven without their shoes on. Right? <coughs> he took off his shoes to begin the prayer and the rain started falling. That's all, before he even opened his mouth. Their power was so enormous that they could achieve results like that. He asked for the Mashiach and he was not granted. So I'm going to ask. In addition, you go back before Rebbe, you go to the prophets, take, take one of the, Yechesel, one of the great prophets of all time, who's far surpassed Rebbe Yekiva in, in a particular way of spiritual greatness, let's say, in the age of prophecy. He asked Hashem for the Mashiach and he was not granted. The problem is, how am I going to make, again, if you see yourself in proportion, how do you have any energy to open your mouth? Are we together? You look back through history, you see these people who have such potency, that they could move worlds. And they asked for a particular thing was not given to them. How can you realistically expect me to even begin? But the answer is, a Jew doesn't think like that. You have to, think, you have to understand this, that you're not, you're not working in isolation. It's a tragedy to think that you're asking for something and it's going to be given because of you. There's a history here. It all, in, the, in the mystical sources, explained that when it comes to prayer, for example, tefillah is, a, is a, um, an accumulation throughout history. That everyone who asks makes a difference. That doesn't mean everyone who asks gets the result. Everyone makes a difference. If you want a picture, the picture is like this. Let's say that the tefillahs that we have to utter, the prayers we have to utter, to be granted to reach the result of Mashiach, let's say, let's say it's like a barrel that has to be filled. A barrel. Came along Yecheskel the Novi, and he asked Hashem for the result. His power, his, his tefillah was so intense, he half filled the barrel by himself. Half filled it by himself, enormous power. Later came Rabbi Akiva, an enormous power. With his tefillah, he put another quarter. Yes, the barrel was now three quarters full. What happens is, as each generation goes by, we're able to put in less and less. But you have to remember, the barrel's getting fuller and fuller. You have to remember that. You can't forget that. When the end of history arrives, and that barrel has almost been filled, and all the previous generations have begged and pleaded, and they've extended themselves in this, themselves in this mitzvah, as not being granted. Right? What's happened is, the result hasn't been achieved, but the barrel has been filling and filling and filling. What's going to happen at the end of history is that some pathetic, broken-hearted Jew is going to come along and he's got, going to utter one last, almost hopeless filler. And it's going to put only one drop in the barrel, but that's going to fill the barrel. And that's going to be the result. And therefore, the more, yeah, the more hopeless it becomes, the more hopeless it feels, the, the longer it goes, you have to have paradoxically in your mind the fact that 
as life ebbs away, as it were, and your power becomes less and less, but you're closer and closer. It's true that in the previous generations they, they moved by great leaps and bounds, but they were miles from the destination. Today you're crawling through the mud, there's no question about it. You're crawling two steps ahead and being blown back three, and you're by, holding on to your teeth and nails. But you're almost there. It's a few more crawled steps and you'll be there. That's the way we have to think. Of course, the only condition is you have to keep moving. You, know, you have to keep moving. It might be slow, but you've got to be crawling... <coughs> No, the Medrash says, <coughs> when it comes to the final battle, <coughs> the final showdown between Yaakov and Esav, the Medrash puts it like this. The Pasuk says, Vahaya beis Yaakov esh, that the house of Yaakov, the Jewish people, will be like a fire. Beis Yosef lehava, and the house of Joseph is like a flame. We are like fire, and Joseph, Yosef, who has a particular power to battle against Esav, is like a flame. The difference between a fire and a flame is that the fire is what it is. The flame is the ability to reach out. That's what it is. Baha'i obeys Esav Lakash. And the house of Esau, Esav, right, those nations that try to destroy us, will be like straw. That's what it says. So the Medrash says, what is this fire and straw? What does it mean that we are like fire and they're like straw? What does that mean? It says like this, that in the ancient marketplace, it brings a very interesting mashal, analogy. In the ancient shuk, the marketplace, there was a pechami. A pechami is, we don't have that today, but a pechami is a person who sells coals. He had a, a burning brazier, and in his fire he had coals alive, and people who'd want to make a fire would go down to the market, they would buy some small embers glowing in the coals, and take them home to make their fire. That was, his, that was his profession. And his job was to keep his coals burning. One day he was in the marketplace with his coals, and a straw seller arrived. Now you know you can only sell straw in bulk. A few strands of straw are completely worthless. The only way you sell straw is by the ton. So the fellow arrived with his camels full of straw, and he started loading bales of hay into the marketplace by the ton. And the place became so constricted there was no place left, and he started to panic. The Pechami was sitting there thinking that it was all being completely crowded out. He'd be buried under tons of straw, and he'd be completely obliterated. So there was one wise man standing there who said to him, What are you worried about? What are you worried about? When he gets close enough to you, one spark from your coals will destroy all of your straw. What it means is like this, that the world out there that tries to kill us, their sense of value is in might, power, right? It's in terms of numbers. Yeah. When, when Esau comes to battle Yaakov, it says he had 400 men with him, right? Arba Meus ish, 400 men. It's always the moral explains an expression of multitude, right? Why that number means that, you have to explain some other time, but it means he comes with multitudes, right? And he, his measure of who he is, is is in terms of how much Yes, how much he has, how many and how much. And when Yaakov tries to give him a gift, he says, I don't need your gifts. Ki li rov, achi, I have much. Who I am is a person of, I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I have much. And Yaakov says, take my gift, ki li kol, I have everything. You can only talk about having everything if you talk about spirituality. You can, if you talk about physicality, then you, all you can have is more. Yeah, if you talk about physical possessions, then, then the only value in those things is how wealthy or how expensive or how many. If you're talking about spirituality, in the physical world you can never have everything. You can't say I have everything, you can just say I have much. You can have very much, but you can't have it all. In the spiritual world, spirituality is not measured in numbers or quantities. <coughs> Therefore, he says I have everything. What it means is, <coughs> the final showdown, you have to understand this, the final showdown will be between Asab's might, the world that will try to destroy us, <coughs> try to destroy us with its, <coughs> with its physical might, its numbers, its power, its weight of arms, 
and its values of physicality. And the battle that we have to wage against them is the battle of a spark of flame. It's not the battle of much. If you try to battle against them with, with might and power and so forth, that's not. The battle we have to wage against them is a battle of... That's what happens. When finally their might, their tons of straw, try to crowd us out, right, the battle then will be one spark can burn a whole world of, of straw or, or wood. Doesn't, the quantity is irrelevant. Fire is a thing that's measured in terms of what it is. How much of it is irrelevant? You don't need a lot of fire to start a big fire. One small match is adequate. <clears throat> the only condition is it has to be fire. Because if your job is to keep the coals alive, and you, you have one small coal that has a flame in, that has something glowing and burning, you can set the whole world alight. But if you hold one small coal and you let the fire go out, then you really look ridiculous. Then you have nothing. Then straw is a lot better. Right? Even though it's, even though it's, a, it's a finite and, and tangible thing, but nevertheless, at least, you, at least you have that. But what you hold, when you hold in your hand a coal of flame, of fire, the only value that it has is that there has to be something alive in there. If what you hold in your hand is a piece of coal and that's gone out, then you really are, then you're in real trouble. Then you really have nothing. And therefore, the Jews' job in exile, our job here is it doesn't matter how much of it we have. Because it's a thing that's not me- measured in quantity anyway. What we have to have, what you have to make sure is that in your heart, yours, you personally, and in your children's hearts, is at least a spark. It has to be something. It's a genuine thing. It has to be a genuine spark of Torah. That's our job. Now, I'm not talking about quantity in the first place. <clears throat> so let's, let's, let's understand. Let's take it further. Let's think this theme through. Let me, let, let's try and approach it from this angle. You know, let's try and approach it from the parshas that we're going through. At the end of, book, at the end of Rashi's in the parsha that we're talking about, what happens is that Yaakov is dying. It's the end of his life now in Mitzrayim. Uh, he's not managed to get back alive. And now gives a blessing to his children. <coughs> so the Chumash says like this, he called in Yosef, Joseph, and he wanted to give a bracha to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. You remember this? All the Shvatim, all the tribes are in Egypt. He calls in, he asks, Yosef brings to him the two sons, his two grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he gives them a bracha and he puts his wrong hand, it seems, on the wrong head. Instead of his right hand on the head of Manasseh, he puts his right hand, he crosses his hands, puts his right hand on the head of Ephraim. There are two similar questions that are raised at that point. Right? Two similar questions. One is, why does he give blessings to his grandchildren from Joseph and not to any of the others? The commentaries who talk about it say this, and there's a, there's a very interesting essay from Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky in which he, he goes into this. What, is, what mistake did Yaakov make many years before? He showed favoritism to a son. You remember that? He showed favoritism to a son. You should never make a distinction between your children. Because you show favoritism to a child. Again, favoritism to a child doesn't mean that the children get the same thing. That's not what it means. Children and family should not get the same thing. But they should all get the same of what they need. Are you with me? If one child needs extra lessons and another doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to give the other child extra lessons too. That's just ridiculous. He's getting extra lessons because he needs them. It doesn't mean you give the children the same. It means that all children get as much of what they need as all the others. Right? Sometimes when they're very little, you can't put that message across. You have to give them the same. Literally the same. But that's the concept. So he made a mistake at his level. He favored Joseph. And because of that, there was a terrible, terrible consequence in the world. The brothers became jealous, etc. Now at the end of his life, he's making the same mistake again. What does he do? He's calling in the children of Yosef, his grandchildren from Joseph, and he's going to give them brachas. Why does he not call in the grandchildren of all the other Shvatim? Again, how can you make the same mistake? Look what you suffered for this error of favoring his children or him. Do you, do you hear the problem? And furthermore, when you deal with the grandchildren, you make the same mistake again. Ephraim is the younger one, you put your right hand on his head. 
I mean, so Yaakov explains like this. It's a very important thing to know again, and it's essential for us. It's again the center of what we are here in our, in our exile. Is that the reason he did this was not because he favored them. He gave them the blessings. Listen carefully. He gave the blessings to Ephraim and Manasseh, not because he favored them, but because they needed them. He was giving, again, the other tribes had come down from Israel, right? They had come down from Israel, from Canaan. They were people whose consciousness was living back there. Their consciousness was not living in Egypt. In Egypt, they were exiles, strangers in a strange land. But Joseph's children had been born in Egypt. And there the danger was they may never remember who they're supposed to be. These are children brought up in an exile. They'd never seen what, they'd never seen Canaan, they'd never seen the old country, they'd never seen what it meant to live in Israel, yes, with all that that means in the house of Yaakov. They were brought up in Egypt. And therefore he wasn't, he wasn't concerned about the others. They were born of parents who had lived in that land. They were now living in Egypt. They were aware totally and constantly that they were children of an exile. But what he was concerned about was that Joseph's children, brought up in an Egyptian reality, their father was a great man, a great Egyptian recognized by the, by, 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 by the Egyptians. Those children brought up in that country, there was a terrible danger of their assimilating <coughs> into becoming Egyptians. Of course, we're talking about at their level. We're not talking about what assimilation means today, obviously. We're talking about their level. We're talking about a level where just a slight change in consciousness is already a disaster. But he was concerned that that change in consciousness might happen. And therefore, he wasn't favoring Joseph's children. He was giving them, he felt they were in danger of drowning in the other's words, and he gave them what they needed. And you know why he gave Ephraim a bracha more than Manasseh? Because, says Rabbi Yaakov, he was worried about him more than Manasseh. You know why? Because Manasseh was born, the history of Ephraim and Manasseh was, Manasseh was born when Joseph had come down to Egypt, and Manasseh was born. What phase of Joseph's life was that? It was a phase when he was trying to adjust to living in Egypt. He was mourning the life that he left behind, and his father, and his father's house, and he was making that transition into, into surviving in Egypt. Kinashani Elohim. He, he named Manasseh from the, the effort of forgetting yeah, the previous part. Manasseh's name for the transition from being what he once was as a child of Yaakov Avinu in Eretz Canaan and becoming now in Egypt. A child born of that fracture, thought Yaakov, was not in danger. But what happened next? Ephraim was born later when Joseph was already adjusted to being a ruler in Egypt. The name of Ephraim means I become successful. When a Jew becomes successful in exile, then his children are in mortal danger. Because when a Jew settles down in exile, and he feels this is where I am, and I'm respected and I'm one of them, there's a couple of country clubs, but who wants to join them anyway? The point is that I'm one of them, I go to the universities and, I, yeah, and they respect me, and then the child is in mortal danger. I'm not just talking about intermarriage, which we'll have to speak about a little bit. But the general becoming assimilated, and assimilation doesn't only mean that you forget that you're Jewish. Assimilation means any of how Jewish you are that you forget. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about anything. It's not for me. Assimilation is for those people who... Any degree of loss of intensity, right? That's already become, be, called becoming part of the, of the, of the culture. Ephraim was brought up in that, and therefore Yaakov was much more concerned about him. He was concerned because this child was born of a Joseph who had already become, as it were, at his level, comfortable. That means he was already established, he was already successful. You know that the Midrashim say that Yaakov gave a shear every day to Ephraim. You know that? Of his two grandchildren, he learned Torah every day with Ephraim. He never learned with Manasseh. Why did he, imagine, imagine, imagine the opportunity of having a shear every day from Yaakov. Can you imagine that? Imagine you had a grandfather, 
Yaakov Avinu was your grandfather. And every day you had a private shear. Could you imagine that? Ephraim was privileged by that. Every day he learned Torah with his grandfather Yaakov. He didn't spend the same time learning with Menashe. Say the sources. You know why? Because he felt Ephraim needed it. Menashe was a child who still spoke Hebrew. Still spoke Hebrew, Menashe. He still remembered that he was the translator. You remember when Joseph needed an interpreter for the brothers. Joseph didn't let on that he could speak Hebrew. So who was the interpreter? And you know, speaking Hebrew doesn't only mean the language. It means Lashon Kodesh. It means speaking the language of Kedusha. That means that Menashe was still able to do that. Ephraim was already born subsequently. He was born in Egyptian reality. And Yaakov was terribly worried that if he didn't get an extra dose of Kedusha and of Torah and of Bracha, he wouldn't survive. You know, Yaakov even says an amazing thing. I mean, this is a... He says, I, he says that Ephraim, Ephraim is an Egyptian name. You know that? Of course it's a Hebrew name. Of course it's a Hebrew name. It's Al-Shem Pri. We know that. We know that. But he says there was also a homage, as it were. He says, if you look at the names of that generation, you'll find that it was a custom in Egypt that they always called their children names that had letters from Pharaoh's name. They had Pei, Resh, Ayin. The, le- the central letters of Pharaoh's name, they always gave to their children, right, named for the king. For example, Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua were really Miriam and Yochebet. Of course they had Hebrew names, but they also had Egyptian names. The Egyptian names were both names that had letters from Pharaoh's name. And he says that Ephraim, the pay in the Resh, was already given to Ephraim. Do you know what he's talking, you know, Yaakov Kamenetsky is writing these words, you have to just see the context. He is a Torah giant who comes to a country, in this case happens to be America. And he sees what's happening to the Jewish people in that country. And from that pain, these words are, these words are, who do you think he's speaking to? Who do you think he's speaking to when he says that they named their children, right? For the, we know the greatness of the Jews in Egypt is that they didn't change their names. But it doesn't mean they didn't also have Egyptian names. That there wasn't also a homage to, it's an issue, it's an issue. What are your children's names? What are your children's names? What, are you, what is your name, exactly? How are you known, exactly? What's the essence of how you know? It's not a simple matter. A child to be brought up, at the very least, have, have, knowing that his real name is his Hebrew name, even if he's given a name that, that goes <coughs> in the country. But a sense of identity, that's where he is. Ephraim already carried that name. He really was brought up when his father was a successful Egyptian, as it were, already assimilated, not yet, I'm talking about, Joseph didn't assimilate, become an Egyptian, but he was already in charge, in command. He was and he adds another thing, which is perhaps even more sobering for us. <clears throat> you know that many years later, when the exile ended, you know that when the Jews left Egypt, there was one tragic event that happened before they left. The great victorious, triumphant Exodus from Egypt, right? That culminated in the splitting of the sea and finally the building of the Mishkan. (coughs) There was a very tragic event that occurred 30 years before. That event was that one of the tribes miscalculated the Kabbalistic tradition. That means there was a a deep tradition about how long the exile in Egypt would last. And one of the tribes miscalculated and they were quite certain that the date had arrived. It was 30 years before the correct date, but they miscalculated. The others told them they were wrong. But they were absolutely convinced that the time had arrived. And in complete dedication to that idea, they left Egypt and they were all killed. They were all decimated in the desert, they were wiped out, they were killed. Many sources indicate that the bones of those people who died in the desert were the bones that Yechezkel later saw and reconstructed. The Valley of Dry Bones. Who were the people? Who who was this Valley of Dry Bones? When Yechezkel went out and saw the bones and connected them. Who were those people? There are many Midrashic 
discussion, much discussion about it. One opinion is, they were the bones of the tribe that left Egypt 30 years early and died because they miscalculated. You know which tribe that was? Ephraim. The descendants of Ephraim were the ones who went out early. Caesar and Yaakov Kamenetsky, why did they make the mistake? Why did they make the mistake? Why Ephraim? What, their mathematics was not as good as the other tribe? What happened? He says, they had in their hearts a Nagir. In their hearts, there was an error, mathematically, but it was fanned into a flame by a vested interest. You know what the vested interest was? They couldn't stand the exile. They couldn't stand it. They were so broken and so hurt by what they experienced in Egyptian exile that they, 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 as it were, they became blind to the correct calculation in order to leave as soon as possible. You know why they were broken? Because the children of Ephraim were children brought up from a great-grandfather, namely Ephraim, who was successful in Egypt. And when the non-Jewish nation, that was the host nation, turned against them, for them it was painful beyond, beyond suffering. The other Jews, everybody else in Egypt, when the non-Jews turned against them, they hadn't expected better. Because they knew that the current of Jewish history in the world is that you're hosted by a nation and sooner or later they turn on you. Sooner or later they turn on you. It can happen slowly, gradually, it can happen overnight. Sooner or later they turn on you. And when it happens, a very, very painful thing. But what happens to a person who thought he was part of them, who thought he'd adjusted, who thought that he was honored and respected by them, that is so, the betrayal is so painful. You know? The others, the other brothers came down from Eretz Israel. They knew they were strangers hosted in another land. They never really thought they were being respected. They thought they were being tolerated. So when the anti-Semitic decrees began to be promulgated, they had to wear yellow stars, whatever it was they had to do, they hadn't expected better. But the B'nai Ephraim, who had thought that they studied in the best universities, they respected our grandfather, he saved the country. So when the Egyptians turned, the Medrash says the Egyptians turned and they said, your grandfather didn't save the country, he just did it to get rich. That's what they said. What do you mean Joseph saved Egypt? What do you mean? We could have done it ourselves, they said. Joseph only did it because he saw an angle, like you Jews always do, of finding a way to get rich and run the country. That's what he did. So he took over, that's what he was for his own self-aggrandizement, his self-enrichment, that's all. That's what they accused him. When Ephraim heard that, right, from people who should have had a debt of gratitude, they should have had, you know the Midrashim say that when Pharaoh, you know how the exile began, the torture began, the slavery began? Because the Jews were exempt from taxes. That's what happened. The Jews were exempt from taxes. The Egyptians were not only obliged in taxes, they had extremely heavy tax. Why? Because Joseph made a law. You see the whole mechanism? Joseph made a law that all the Egyptians would be bought by Pharaoh. They were starving, right? There were, there were years of famine. There were years of famine, and there was no food. So, you, so Joseph said, look, I have, I've stored up food for years. You can have the food, but you sell yourselves, for they became slaves. And then he said, and not only that, take seed from me, and you sow the land. One-fifth of what you produce goes to Pharaoh. The taxation from the land from now on, except for the Kohanim, is that every Egyptian who reaps a crop, one-fifth goes to Pharaoh. That's the tax. The Jews never had to pay that tax. Of course they didn't. The Jews had saved the country. The Jews were in a little enclave on their own. Egyptians wanted nothing to do with them. They were living a privileged lifestyle. And the Egyptians were paying this heavy tax. Why did the Egyptians tolerate it? Because they owed their, their, everything they had to these Jews who saved them. What happened two generations later? After Joseph had died and a new king arose... So then he said, these Jews are a problem. We've got to come up with a solution. So his advisor said to him, but you can't make decrees against them. You make decrees against them. How ungrateful. So he said, well, you know what we'll do? All we'll do is tax them. We'll tax them like everybody else. Oh, we're, not, we're not singling them out. All we're doing is bringing them up into the same... Ah, the gratitude that they saved your country and they deserve a privilege because of that. He said, no, it's not fair for one citizen to be treated differently. Nobody could argue against that. So then they put taxes on the Jews. And gradually, gradually... Yeah, what happened was, 
So the Egyptians turned around and they said, you, 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 you don't deserve this, you don't deserve this privilege. What do you mean your grandfather saved, your great-great-grandfather saved the country? He was thinking about his own wealth, really. When Ephraim heard that, right, knowing the truth, and seeing how these, this host nation that owed everything to them, had turned on them and began this anti-Semitic decrease. Do you know that the Medrash says, I mean, many commentaries say, you know, you have to understand, again, it's painful for us as Jews, but we have to understand this. You know, when Joseph's father died, when Yaakov died, <coughs> it says that he spoke to the base paroi. Yeah, listen carefully, every, every detail here. Again, we have this, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky is the one who points this out. You know, when Yaakov died, Joseph wanted to bury him back in Egypt. So what did he do? He spoke to the servants of Pharaoh's house to ask permission from Pharaoh to go and bury his father back in Canaan. The commentaries all asked the question, why didn't he speak to him himself? Joseph was an honored member of Pharaoh's household. He was second in command of the country, right? He saved the whole country. Pharaoh treated him like a son. It was a whole, yes, originally. Now his father dies. He wants permission to do what? To go back and bury him as he promised his father that he would. He can't speak to Pharaoh. He has to speak to the servants to put in a word with Pharaoh to get him permission. To, why couldn't he speak to him himself? So one of the Mephoshim says like this. You know why? Because he was an oina. You know that is? A person waiting a burial of a relative. And while you're awaiting the burial of a relative and subsequently while you're in mourning, you cannot wash or dress in fine clothes or shave or have a haircut. And there's a rule, you may not enter the presence of a king. Like it says in Megillus Esther, right? You can't come into the presence of a king wearing sackcloth and looking disheveled and in mourning. You're not allowed to do that. So he, couldn't go into the pres- he could not go into the presence of Pharaoh looking like a mourner. It's not allowed. And therefore he had to ask the servants. Says Arach of Kamenetsky, that's completely wrong. It's an error that. You know why? Because the mitzvah of a person who has a relative to bury is to bury that person. And in fact you're allowed to do... Do you know that a person waiting to bury a relative, like a parent, somebody who's your responsibility to bury, you're not allowed to fulfill mitzvahs. You know that? You don't make blessings. You, don't, you do not fulfill mitzvahs. You're not allowed to perform mitzvahs. Why? Because you have one mitzvah now that takes the amount of everything else. You have to be sure that that person gets buried properly. You are not allowed to perform other mitzvahs at that time. Can't do transgressions. But you don't perform mitzvahs. So what happens? If his mitzvah was to bury his father, and for that he would have needed to shave and dress and wash, he, of course he was allowed to do that. Of course he would be allowed to. The mitzvah is to see that your father's buried the way you, you promised him, right? If to do that, to see Pharaoh, you have to shave and wash it, of course you do that. What's the problem? Says Rabbi Yaakov, you know why he couldn't go in? Because he was already entering the phase where the Egyptians want anything to do with the Jews. And if Joseph himself couldn't even get an audience with Pharaoh, he had to speak to the servants. Already the fall from grace, right? Now that the country had been sustained and saved and so forth already, he couldn't even speak to him personally about burying his own father, right? This is not something that should surprise a Jew in exile. This is the nature, the nature of exile. This is the nature of the relationship that we have. There's no, there's no question about that. So, again, the reality is, the reality is that, yeah... That's where we are, that's who we are, and our role, of course, our role, of course, is to maintain what we have to maintain. We have to maintain that spark in the, that ember, this uh, spark in the coal. We have to re- maintain that at least alive in our own hearts. We have to not expect more than, yeah, it's enough for us to be able to be as successful as possible and maintain that life that is, albeit the life of, of dust that will one day be resurrected, but at least that. One of the most painful areas that this enters is the zone of intermarriage. Right? Because what happens in the assimilationist world, of course, 
one of the most clear and tragic expressions of this thing is that Jews marry non-Jews. Jews marry non-Jews. <coughs> Let's try to speak about that very briefly. Let it point out or pick out, let's say, one tangible aspect of the destruction of exile. This is perhaps, if not the most painful, certainly uniquely painful area. We can't go into detail now and speak it out fully, but let's at least point the direction. What is, what is especially painful about intermarriage? Again, we're talking about a Jewish community that unfortunately doesn't know anything about Torah altogether anyway. Yeah, what, what, again, we're talking about Jews out there, the vast majority, the vast majority of Jews today, out in the world, the overwhelming majority of Jews, who have not the faintest clue about any mitzvahs. They're not keeping Shabbos, they're not eating kosher food, they're not, they don't even know that those are issues. They don't know what keeping Shabbos means, they have no connection with Torah. They haven't had the privilege of being, demonstrated, of being shown any of this. They don't even know their spirituality there to be had. I read about a group of Jews, I mean, how far does it go? A group of Jews who went to see the Dalai Lama some time ago. And, yeah, to study Buddhism and to tell him some ideas about it. And there was a Buddhist monk at the table, of course a Jew, a Jew, a Jewish Buddhist monk at the table. <laughs> One of the senior monks there in the Buddhist thing. Sitting at the table and chanting some of his prayers. This Jewish monk. Jewish Buddhist monk. When he finished his prayers, they benched. Yeah, this Jewish group said grace after meals. They benched. After they finished saying the benching, this monk turned to one of the group and he said, that was a very nice tune. What was that? So one of the Jews said to the other one, no wonder he became a Buddhist monk. He didn't even know that there's such a thing as benching after meals. Not that he rejected Judaism because he didn't find it satisfying. He didn't even know that there was such a thing. He didn't even know if it was a pretty tune. He didn't even know that there was a prayer, there was a, a sanctification of, of food, being, ele- being able to elevate the physical into the spiritual. These are not people who've rejected, people who don't have any... So why do we... Why is intermarriage... Why is there special pain here when the issue of marrying a non-Jew is one other failing or transgression or, or <coughs> falling away from a Jewish root? You know, what? But the answer is like this. a very deep issue here. The issue is that a Jew who has no more connection but at least is married to a Jew in many deep ways that's the last connection. Let me try to explain this. Let me try to explain. You see, the mitzvah of the bris, the circumcision, the mitzvah of bris, again, can't speak out too much detail. That mitzvah is the sanctity of the bonding of one generation to the next that goes through a line that maintains who we are. Even if you're nothing else, but the shell, that means just being... How can I express this? You know that one of the questions that often asked is, why does the Jewish essence go by your mother, not by your father? That's a question. Why is a Jew born Jewish if his mother's Jewish but not his father? Why? I'm not talking about practical. I'm talking about the deep reason. Normally, identity is from the father. Normally. For example, which tribe you belong to. Do you belong to Yehuda, Levi, Shimon, etc.? Are you a Kohen? Are you a Levi? Are you Israel today? It goes by the father. So how come the, 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 the identity of who you are, the root identity, that goes by the mother? It's a very deep issue. And again, it can't be spoken out here in detail. But the issue is like this. Because when a Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman. The Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman. The reason the child is not Jewish is because there's been a breaking of bris here. There's been a breaking of covenant. <coughs> when a Jewish woman marries a non-Jewish man, the child remains Jewish because there's no breaking of bris. She's not allowed to do that. She's, she's doing a prohibition. There's no question about it. 
and she's missing an opportunity for a great mitzvah. But she doesn't, since a woman doesn't have a bris, yeah, she doesn't have the sanctity. The sanctity of bris by a woman is in her marriage. But she doesn't have it in her body. And therefore, there hasn't been a breaking of that thing that's called covenant, that's called bris. See, bris is, covenant is that which goes beyond intellect. It goes beyond, it's a commitment. A commitment means that we make a covenant between us. I stand by you no matter what. Once I sign that treaty, that means complete exclusivity. It's you for me and me for you regardless. <coughs> Let me try to express it this way. Again, the painful things. The, the Madras says like this. That in the next world, in the next world, I don't know a sharper way to put it than this. In the next world, there is a dimension, let's call it, it's hard to find words that aren't so laden with the religion of the non-Jews around us, that it's almost impossible to hear what they mean. But there is a dimension of suffering in the next world, trying to avoid the words that they use. Yeah, and into that dimension of, of, of a burning pain, let's call it, right, the soul has to be dipped in that world. The neshama has to be, in order to be broken away from its physicality, there's first a dipping into a thing that's called the river of fire, that's called the Nahar Dinur. Nahar Dinur is the river of fire that separates this world from the next. Actually, Dinur in Hebrew means of fire, and it's the same letters as Yardain, right? which is the Jordan, which is the river that separates the outside of Eretz Israel with the Kedusha inside. <coughs> Moving from outside to inside, from this world to the next, there's a certain dimension of being dipped in that river of fire, let's say. Right? And beyond that is another experience like that. The point is that Neshamas need that. In proportion to the attachment that you have built to this world, the attachment to physicality and to non-spiritual values, to that, to that extent, there's a pain, there's a suffering that has to be burned away. At the entrance to that place, the Major says, sits Abraham Avinu. Abraham sits there. Abraham Avinu, the father of all Jews. He sits at the entrance to that place. And every Jew who's about to enter, he pulls him out. Pulls him out, he saves him. Again, listen carefully, amazing thing. Here's a dimension of pain. A Jewish neshama is going to go in there, and it's going to experience the pain that it needs to correct it from its, not, from, from its non-spiritual heaviness and, and, and detachments, let's say. But before the Jew goes in there, his great-grandfather pulls him out. Saves him. Except for a Jew who's had an intimate relationship with a non-Jewish woman. Him he doesn't recognize. He doesn't recognize him. And he can't pull him out. <coughs> what does this mean? Let's understand, what does this mean? First of all, the first question is, how can somebody save me if I deserve... What, what is this, justice? You're talking about, let's just get it clear. For example, the Nahar Dinur, Yardain, means the river of Din. Dan, in Hebrew, means Din. Din means that which is deserved. You're only going to experience that, let's call it suffering, because you need it, because you deserve it. It's exactly what's deserved. In that world, there are no mistakes. <laughs> There's no mistakes. If you, suffer, if you suffer in that world, it's only because you need to be resensitized, because you weren't sensitive. But it's exactly what you need. Not one drop more, not one drop less. You're only going there because you deserve it. How can somebody else pull you out? What kind of justice is that? Here's a Jew who's about to enter that dimension, right, of suffering for what he has built in the world that is not correct. Why is he going in there? Because he needs it. He deserves it. It's 100% accurate. So, so, <laughs> so how can somebody else pull him out? You have the question. What kind of justice is that? And furthermore, if you can pull him out, why not a person who's done all sorts of sins, but he's married a non-Jewish woman? What, what, what? He's not recognizable. Why is that? 
And the answer is like this. It's very deep and amazing things. These Midrashim, you have to understand the root. What is, what is being said here? What's being said is this. Avram Avinu Abraham, Avram the great-grandfather, has a tremendous merit. Now, he started the whole enterprise. He has what you call a credit balance that's beyond imagination. He has credit that is just beyond imagination. But we have two things called schus avois and bris avois. Right? The schus, that means the merit of the forefathers. That means, you, you have to understand, you are who you are in the world because he's your grandfather. He has all that to his credit. When a Jew is about to enter that dimension, you know why he gets saved? Not because the Jew doesn't deserve it. He richly deserves it, but the grandfather doesn't. There's another accounting here. Listen well. You have a close friend. You love your friend dearly. You do anything for your friend. You have a tremendous debt of love and gratitude to your friend. One day your friend's son or grandson is in trouble. Big trouble. What do you do? Put yourself out for his son. Why? Does the kid deserve it? No, he doesn't. He doesn't deserve it. But your friend, because of your love for him, your commitment and your undying yeah, mutual love for each other, you put yourself out. Not because the child or grandson child deserves it. On the contrary, he doesn't. If it was somebody else's child, you wouldn't have. But you're doing it because you don't want to see your friend hurt. When Avram Avinu sits at the entrance to this place, with his incredible merits and his love for Hashem, and the Jew's about to suffer, Hashem says to himself, as it were, well, he deserves it, but on the other hand, I'm going to hurt the grandfather. The merit of the grandfather is so great that he gets pulled out. You understand? It is justice. This is not a perversion of justice. That is justice, because there's a credit balance here that is genuine. And therefore, in as much as you're a grandchild, you get pulled out. Why? Only because you're a grandchild. You want an analogy? There's a knock on the door at this very fancy country club. Very elite, posh country club. The fellow with the white gloves, you know, the black tie, white gloves, opens the door. Who's standing there asking for admission is a smelly youth with sandals and tattered shorts and grimy, grubby individual. He'd like to come in and join. The butler slams the door. But that's how they treat youngsters like that. But the kid puts his foot in the door and he mentions his surname. And it happens to be the surname of the founder of the club. He happens to be the son or the grandson of the founder of the club. Do you know what the butler does? He ushers him in. He takes him into the VIP lounge and he brings him a whiskey. I say, you know why? Does the kid deserve it? No, he doesn't. He's broken all the rules. But his grandfather started the club. That's why they're feeling like that. Because the club wouldn't be there if not for his grandfather. You understand what's happening? When this Jewish child is about to enter that dimension in which he's going to experience, let's say, his own inadequacy, right? he gets pulled out because the grandfather is who he is. Right? Not because, yeah? And that's what the accounting is. He's saved by the grandfather. Now listen carefully. Except a person who's married a non-Jewish woman. You know why? Because the last thing that he has going for him, why is he being saved? Listen carefully, it's amazing. Do you know why he's being pulled out now? Because he's a grandson of the grandfather. Why is he a grandson of the grandfather? Because the grandfather married a Jewish woman. And therefore the next offspring was Jewish. And that man also married a Jewish woman, so the next generation was Jewish. That's why he's here today. That's why he's a grandchild. But he's just taking himself out of that. How can he be recognized? The only thing that he had was being part of a chain. That's all he had. He had no merits of his own. The only thing that he had was he was an issue of a chain that was never broken. So when he's taking himself out of that chain, there's nothing wrong with the non-Jewish woman. She might be incredible. There might be an amazing relationship. She might be a wonderful woman. But all he had left was the fact that he's a link on a chain. The link in the chain, <laughs> Desley used to say, when you have one of those watches that you have attached to you by a chain, the links have no value, but they worth everything because the link means the, chain's, the, the watch is attached. 
Throughout the chain of the generations, if there's a Jew who has no merits, imagine a Jew who has no merits at all, but at least he's part of the chain, at least that. So the next generation is another link in the chain. Until Mashiach comes and we're all there. Here's a person who has no merits and he's taking himself out of the world. What is there left? What is there left? He, by definition, has nothing of his own. And now he's broken the chain. That's all he was, was a link in the chain that goes to the end of history. And therefore, his identity is no longer there. That's what it is. It's not that it's a sin worse than other sins. It's not that the culpability is greater when a person doesn't know what he's doing, like he doesn't keep Shabbos and he doesn't know anything else. But the, 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 the tragedy of this issue is, unlike other things that affect him spiritually, this thing breaks a chain that is the continuity that takes until the Sheikh. That's the issue. And finally, it's a particular problem of our generation. I, I doubt if there's anyone in this room, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would venture to guess that if I ask for a show of hands, there wouldn't be one person in this room who doesn't have somebody close to them is not an intermarried situation. Probably not. If not first degree relative, at least, probably not. Why? How do we forget that? How do we lose that, that sense of identity? <coughs> I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking about just a sense of identity, of a, of, of a loyalty to, to an identity, to, to who you are. And the answer is very, very... Very difficult, but it has to be understood, and it's like this. And again, what we're driving for here is the, is the, is the searching. What we're searching for is the strength to keep that spark in the coal alive just enough that it just remains defined as fire. That's all. And the problem is that if you have it, there's no guarantee your child will. No guarantee at all. And the reason is like this. I'll finish with this. I heard once from one of the great Torah leaders of this generation, one of the great sages of this generation. I heard him say the following thing. I'll tell you the story exactly, because every aspect of the story is fundamental, seminal. But I, and I hope you'll see the immediate relevance as well. He said like this. I was once speaking, he said, to one of the great Torah sages of the previous generation. We're going back two generations now. And I once was speaking to him. And this great man said to me, a young man once approached me, and said to me, how is it possible that the previous generation in Europe fell for such nonsense? That they were swept away by, by an ideology that was so silly. He meant communism and socialism. That's what he meant. How was an ideology that was so, so empty and led to such brutality and such, was such a false ideology? How did it, you know, the Jews were swept away en masse by that. You know that. The yeshiva world was swept away. You know that. I mean, they were, it, was a, it had a messianic sense. It was... <laughs> We mentioned of Yaakov Kamenetsky before. You know that he said when he was a boy of 15 years old in Yeshiva, the, 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 the intensity of the attraction of Trotsky and the, the move was so powerful that the Mashkir in Yeshiva paid him five rubles a month to stay in the Yeshiva. Do you know what that means? That means a person talented enough to become one of the generation's leaders, the only way the Mashkir could get him to stay in Yeshiva and learn was by paying him money. You have to understand, the attraction of that ideology was so extreme, it was so messianic, it had such promise that Jews, attached Jews, Jews who knew, were swept away. What accounts for that phenomenon? Now listen to the answer because it's just an amazing thing. I said to the young man, the reason is, you see, how's your mind working? How's your mind working? How do our minds work? Well, they were swept away because they were downtrodden and, uh, I don't know, Germany this and the Kaiser and uh, sociological influences and the hope of... Uh, that's how your mind is thinking, isn't it? That's not the way the Torah thinks. I said to him, the reason that they were swept away by that ideology was because the Gemara says, Achas b'shivim shono. 
Once every 70 years, a star arises, a star arises that misguides the ship's navigators. That's what the Talmud says. Listen carefully. Every 70 years, a star moves. There's a firmament of stars. The navigators in the ships, they sail by the stars. Every 70 years, a star moves. Completely moves. And the navigators get confused, and they start following that star, and they go wrong. That's what the Talmud says. What does it mean? Listen well. Achas v'shivim shana means once every lifetime. Seventy years is considered a lifetime. Once every generation, an ideology arises in the history of mankind, in the consciousness of mankind, which is out of focus, out of sync. It's not, it's, it's bizarre, but it's real. And it attracts, it's a tremendous ordeal and attracts a generation. Incidentally, you know that the communist ideal lasted exactly 70 years. Do you know that? From the revolution in 1917 till the fall of the wall in 87, the Chavetz Chaim said exactly when it would end. Once every 70 years, once every generation, once every conscious, li- lifetime consciousness, something happens in human ideology, and people start, have a tremendous temptation, they follow that star. This generation was tempted by that. That's what happened. There was a messianic type of a thing. You can't imagine how attractive and what a, what a promise it held out and what a dream of, of human kindness and equality and fairness and justice. You, you can't. You know why you can't understand it? Because you don't live in a generation when that star is out of place. To you, it looks absolutely ridiculous, brutal, negative. You would never fall for such a thing. Not because you who you are, but because the star is back in place. Okay, so far so good? Now, the obvious question. The obvious question, unfortunately, we're talking about somebody intelligent enough to ask such a question. He said, I then turned to him. Yes, you're talking about the, the sage, the rabbi I'm talking about, speaking to this older sage who had just said these words. And I said to him, what is the star that misguides our generation? Oh, that's what we want to know, right? That was then, collapse, no one follows that anymore. Who on earth dreams that that's significant anymore? What is the star that misguides our generation? And he said, I think it is the blurring of the distinction between Jew and non-Jew. You understand what that means? That means... According to the opinion of this great mind, you live in a generation where there's an ambience, there's, a, there's, there's something in the air, in the stars, that prevents your seeing the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. We're not talking about good, bad, quality, Jews are better, non-Jews, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the fact that there's a complete distinction. Jewish, being Jewish means you have a particular flavor of soul. There's a particular neshama you have. And a non-Jew has a completely different, completely different, utterly and completely different. You know why a Jew and a non-Jew cannot marry? Not because we better or because they better, but because it takes the spiritual interlocking of the right kind of neshamas. Yes? Why can two men not marry? I mean, you know, let's... Sometimes we have to remind ourselves even about those things, but why is it that a man cannot marry a man? Uh, because another man is not good enough, but because a man and a woman hook into each other. There's a spiritual interlocking of a Jewish man and a Jewish woman that locks in. The, we call marriage, yeah, the sanctity of marriage is called Kiddushin. There's a sanctified interlocking that can only happen with those conditions. With a non-Jew, you can't do that. You can live with a non-Jew. You can have a tremendous, amazing relationship. You can be a wonderful person, etc. Just like two men could have the most unbelievable love. In some ways, the Gemara says, so you can have a greater love two men for each other than between a man and a woman in some ways. But you can't get married. Jew and non-Jew can't get married to each other, not because of prejudice or quality, or, but because the spiritual requirements aren't there to form what's called Kiddushin. And the blurring of the distinction, do you know what's absolutely fascinating? Is that during the communist era, the star that misguided them was communism. 
But the difference between Jew and non-Jew was richly aware. Do you know that? Do you know what the, one of the biggest insults you could say? I mean, I... Once when Trotsky was together with a number of leaders of the Communist Party and Stalin was present, Trotsky looked around and he suddenly realized something. He said to all the others in Yiddish, as di goi gate vek, minyan for mincha. He didn't mean he was going to die with <laughs> But he meant that that's how they saw themselves. They, 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 the distinction between Jew and non-Jew was so ingrained, it had nothing to do with the ideology, the reli- even the religion. There was a reality to it. It ran in their veins. And we live in a generation where the ordeal of our generation is we don't feel that. And it's not something you can talk about logically. This is an issue where there's a special attachment, a special loyalty, a special feeling for who you are and where you come from. And the uniqueness of the Jewish mission that no matter how much you speak to... You know, let me, let me tell you a story. I, I can't think of a way to say it clearer than this. But what can I say? I, I used to live in a certain place. I, you probably won't believe me, okay? but this happened to me. It's a true story. I used to live in a certain place where there was a certain family in which there were certain children. Okay? And what was unique about that family, in terms of my exposure, was that there was almost no Jewish... I would say we, that community had a, a level of Jewish... Um, Identity that was quite, uh, quite strong. Many people sent their children to Jewish day schools. If you went into any Jewish home in that area, you would see that it was a Jewish home. In this particular home, there was a lot less <coughs> than anywhere else. Maybe there was nothing. I don't recall in that home seeing anything of Jewish significance. And although they lived within walking distance of a Jewish school, the children were sent to a non-Jewish school more, more distant. And that was quite unusual. Okay? So the children were brought up with no, as far as I could tell, no Jewish awareness or identity. I happened to know one of the children in that family was a, a young woman about my age. And she told me that what happened was that her older sister married a non-Jew and her father disowned her. Her father disowned her. When she told me the story, it was two years after the marriage. He had not seen her for two years and he'd never seen his grandchild. Now, just, just one second. Let's just get this clear. Here's a father who brings up his children. He doesn't give them Jewish education. <coughs> Not only a Jewish education, there's just no reference to anything. The girl dates non-Jewish boys, and there's no problem. Then she marries a non-Jew, and he does not speak to her again, ever. He disowns her. He never sees her again, and he never sees his grandchild. W- what is going on? But what's going on is this. He grew up in a generation where being Jewish and marrying a Jew was just a natural thing. It had nothing to do with with how you taught or what you did. It's got nothing to, it had nothing to do with education. He grew up, he, he, he survived a generation of a war where Jews were exterminated just because they were Jewish. You couldn't forget that. How could you forget that? How could you forget having been in a country that was the most cultured place on earth that advertised itself because of its genuine kindness and, 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 and sophistication of, of its culture and so forth that suddenly one day turned on Jews and killed them because they were Jewish en masse by the million. How could you forget that? So, in his mind, the fact that you're a Jew, and that you marry a Jew to propagate this thing, has got nothing to do with education. It's part of... But you know what? She lives in a generation where the stars moved. And in her mind, there's no such thing. So, you know what happens in the communication to his father and his daughter? She thinks her father has taken leave of his senses. She thinks that he's raving. He's become psychotically detached. The man told me nothing about Judaism, and now that I marry a non-Jew, after dating non-Jewish boys, he said nothing, he now he won't speak to me again. The man is raving. There's something wrong with him psychologically. And he thinks she's a traitor to the Jewish people. Because he comes from a generation where that star was not there. The star was in a... St- 
So to him, this, but to her, she doesn't have that at all. And there's no way they can communicate. And therefore, the Jews in our generation who intermarry, if you try to have the discussion with them, they wouldn't, yeah, many of them, unfortunately, wouldn't even understand that there's an issue. They wouldn't understand that there's an issue. They're a fine person. What, what, yeah, I want to be happy. You want me to be happy, right? He's a fine person, a good relationship, etc. But there's something here that, that, that can't be, yes, this is not something that can be demonstrated. You cannot, you can't, <laughs> no, opening no book or sitting down and having no, no length of... A young couple came to see me a few, some time ago. Come to see me. It's a young Jewish fellow. He wants to marry this non-Jewish girl. Will I speak to? Will I speak to her? So he brought her around. What turns out to be the discussion? He wants her to convert. So can I please speak to her about conversion? So I spoke to him. I explained what the issues are, and she said, "No, she's prepared to consider it. She just wants him to know that every night when she puts her children to bed, she's going to tell them that Jesus loves them." <laughs> like, is that okay? You know. <laughs> I haven't seen them since. <laughs> this is where we are. Right? This is where we are. And therefore, how can that spark, how is it reawakened? Telling children is not enough because, because the children listen to you but they also look up at the stars. And if the stars moved, you're talking about a star moving means it has a tremendous influence. It's part of your head that's moved. You're d- dealing with a generation that's got part of its head, the star inside. There's a star inside here that's moved, shifted. You know that, uh, I'll just add this. You know that what happens to us happens to them. You know that. The Jewish consciousness is the core of the world consciousness. Take it or leave it, that's the way it is. The way we think emanates out and that's the way they start thinking. (coughs) I would have said, if you'd asked me, nobody asks me, but had they asked me, had somebody asked me, what stars moved in this generation? I would have said the theory of evolution. That's what I would have said. That's what I would have said. I would have said in previous generations people knew that people were people, animals are animals. Something you had to prove? You had to prove. In this generation it's not so simple. Because this generation isn't clear about the distinction between a human and animals. Also it's not something you can demonstrate. You can't demonstrate that. You can't demonstrate the difference in a person and an animal. You either know it or you don't. As Rabbi Victor Miller used to say, when they call the police to a certain address in uptown New York, because they say they've got a man tied to the table and they're busy cutting him up alive. So the police race in there with their sirens screaming and they burst into the room and it turns out to be the postgraduate dissection hall in the university there and they've got a lightly anesthetized gorilla. And the postgraduate anatomy students are busy dissecting this lightly anesthetized gorilla. So the policeman says, I thought you told us there was a man being dissected. So the anatomy student says, yes, he's a close cousin of mine, this gorilla, because evolution, in evolutionary terms, we are both higher primates and we're very closely related. What he means is, of course, is that if we are evolutionarily related and we are all biological organisms, then what gives you the right to cut up this dumb animal? What gives you the right to do it? If you can cut up this dumb animal without his consent, why can't you go and take some hobo off a park bench in Central Park and cut him up alive as well? Why not? And if you can't do it to that hobo, what gives you the right to do it to this animal? Intellectually, there's no answer to that. You know that? 
There's no answer to that intellectually. There is no answer. You know that in New Zealand, about six months ago, they passed a law granting civil rights to the great apes. You know that? If you're a primate today in New Zealand, if you're an orangutan in New Zealand today, you're in very good shape. You know that? <laughs> in New Zealand today, if you're a chimpanzee or an orangutan or a gorilla, you have civil rights. Why? Because they said, they're similar enough to us, humans, in terms of their sort of appearance and their responses and their instincts and so forth, that if we have civil rights, then they deserve civil rights too. That's what they say. Someone in the parliament asked them what they got against rats. So they said, no, they're working on that next. (laughs) You see, the issue is that there's nothing that the policeman can say to the student because... You know what the policeman does? He walks out and closes the door because a policeman in New York knows a man's a man, a monkey's a monkey. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. But the professor of anatomy there is in trouble because he's been teaching his students that we are only evolutionarily developed gorillas. This lives in the blood. You have to know that a person's a person, animals and animals. Not something you can be... That's what I would have said. And you know what the truth is? The truth is when the world out there doesn't know the difference between a person and an animal, they can't tell that intrinsic difference. We lose the ability to tell the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. <coughs> you see, neither of them can be... Both of them are things you have to know. When we stop making those distinctions that are spiritual, then the world at large stops making those distinctions that are spiritual. The difference between a person and an animal is a spiritual thing. A person has a different kind of a soul. It's a spiritual issue. It's nothing that a book can teach you. You can't put electrodes into the brain of a gorilla or a human being. It won't show you any difference. There's no electrode you can put into that place. You have to know it. You either know it or you don't. And that's the problem. When we get young Jews today in the, in the outreach environment, right? you have to start speaking to this Jew about his Jewish identity. No, you don't. you first got to tell him that he's not a gorilla. That's what you have to do. What sense does it make speaking to a young person about Jewish spirituality when he thinks he's an orangutan? <laughs> that's what he thinks. He's been taught that he's a biological organism. And he's, no more, he's a little bit more sophisticated than a chimpanzee. Now you want to speak to him about Jewish identity? What's the difference in a Jewish orangutan and a non-Jewish orangutan? <laughs> Anyway, anyway, this is the message. And therefore, at this time of year, right, when we're surrounded by this, what we have to remember is that the first step, the first step is an awareness of this issue, right? Just good, simple, old-fashioned sense of identity. Just the smallest of sparks, right, in that, those embers. That's what we're talking about. How's it done? It's done by Torah study. There's nothing else, really. It's engaging that neshama of Torah, which you engage by its study, where it seeps into you, and you become part of it, it becomes part of you, and of course the children have to be exposed to it. They have to be exposed to the, to the depth of it, to the joy of it. They have to see it. They have to, be, they have to swim in it. They have to feel it and enjoy it. It's that exposure that, that we need. That is the, that's the sadness of our generation. The pain is that we are no longer an intact body. We're not alive anymore. We're not a body anymore. We're not bones anymore. But somewhere in the dust that we are, right, we have to remember that yeah, at least... At least that, if we at least remember that there's a pile of dust somewhere, then we can hope at least to remember when it says, He's afar kumi, we know that the resurrection is possible. That we'll be able to shake ourselves not from the dust where we are, but from the dust that we are. Thank you.